Welcome to the Theology and Doxology for the Church podcast. I'm Noah Baker, and today I am joined with my friend and my fellow pastor, Corbin Henderson. Corbin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am good. Uh, So Corbin, as I said, is a pastor at the church uh, that I am also a pastor at, and uh, he's one of my best buddies. So Corbin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am, uh, as I said, my name is Corbin, and I'm 22 years old. I've got a degree in Christian ministry uh, from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm about halfway done with my Master's of Divinity, uh, twice certified biblical counselor, uh, recently just had my first baby, Charlie Libri Henderson, been married for a little over two years now, and I am the student pastor here at the First Baptist Church of Ash Grove. Awesome. So today, uh, I brought you in. We're going to talk about kind of a uh, subject that's not talked about much, but that's emotional and spiritual uh, worship services. And, and today, in today's culture, I feel as though many uh, churches are moving towards this emotional-driven worship set. And so uh, it, it seems that a lot of people come to church expecting to be emotionally stirred during the course of a worship set. Uh, and while I do believe that you know, as we sing worship songs and songs that exalt our risen King, it should bring us to a place that stimulates emotion. Uh, it happens to me frequently uh, as I drive to the tune of worship music. I can recall like two days ago uh, as I'm listening to worship songs and uh, literally sobbing in my car listening to worship songs. So I'm not saying that uh, worship songs should, you know, harden us. I'm not sh- saying that we shouldn't be emotional to those songs, uh, but I think it it can be a problem when we focus more on the emotional aspect of our worship than we do the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. of our worship. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being a worship pastor and talk, talking to other worship pastors, uh, I feel as though a, a lot of worship pastors try to do the job of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and to be honest, I did that early on in my ministry. And we'll talk about that in the second segment uh, some more. But when leading our congregation in worship, uh, sometimes we pick songs that lack sound theology, but promote emotions. Uh, you see this in bigger churches where they adjust their lightings accordingly. Uh, they they give scripture and they give these long and drawn out prayers. Uh, so I would ask you, what are your thoughts on the emotional slash spiritual uh, worship sets that really modern culture is moving towards? I guess I'll give a two-part answer to that. So first, I want to make a, a distinction that actually I learned from Bob Coughlin, who's another worship pastor. Uh, he made a distinction between emotionalism and emotions. He writes this as a quote, the the problem is emotionalism, not emotions. Emotionalism pursues feelings as an end in themselves. It's wanting to feel something with no regard for how that feeling is produced or its ultimate, ultimate purpose. Emotionalism can also view heightened emotions as the infallible sign that God is present. So essentially what he's doing here is he's making a distinction between their emotions are a good thing, right? And, and you said that in your introduction. Emotions are a good thing, right? You're sobbing in your car, but but it's it, be, it can become a not good thing whenever emotions or emotionalism rather uh, is is really put when you put the cart before the horse. If if it's emotion for the sake of emotion or just emotion for the sake of feeling something or having an experience, then really uh, emotions and worship can become an idol. And I think that's what Coughlin's talking about whenever he talks about emotionalism. Emotion, on the other hand, in kind of the context that you were talking about it, uh, is not a bad thing if it's emotion that's stirred up by and caused by truth, theological truth, right? So what we believe, what we know, truth sung, theology sung, scripture sung, ought to stir up emotion as a response to who God is and what God has done. 
not emotion for the sake of emotion, which which I think is what Coughlin is calling here uh, emotionalism. So you're right. I think emotion is is a good thing, uh, but emotionalism a bad thing. We need to be stirred by truth into uh, emotions. And, and Jared Wilson, he actually says uh, this about emotionalism. He says it introduces feelings and experiences prior to biblical knowledge and truth, and this leads to feeling that feelings that are wrong-headed. Putting feelings before doctrine promotes upside-down worship, and I think that's a really good summary of what you're asking, Noah. Right, and so I think that, you know, as we sing worship songs in, in church and we look at that, I think a good indicator uh, to decide if you're if you're going to church, if you're attending church and you come to church uh, and sit through worship services and you're an emotional person because there are people who are easily stirred. Uh, but I think an indicator and something you can evaluate yourself on is if you come into the worship service planning ahead of time that you're going to be stirred emotionally. I think that's an indicator. Uh, if, if, if you're doing that, that might be a sign that you are coming and worshiping for the wrong reason. Now, on the other hand, if you're coming in uh, planning to worship God without any of that in mind, without any emotions in mind, um, and you're easily stirred by the spirit. And that's another thing. What's stirring you? How are you? We need to define that when we're yeah. talking about worship. Are you being stirred by the spirit or are you being stirred by the environment? And that's a huge uh, problem that, that I see in today's culture. Uh, so do you have any more thoughts on that? Um, no, I, th- I think that pretty much covers it uh, between your comments and then that Coughlin comment. Just be being alert, like you said, of why you're coming and what you're trying to get out of it. Uh, and actually, I, I will add this, and, and this is kind of an interesting point. Actually, I'll say this for the next point. I've got something. I've got something to bring up, but I'm going to wait for a minute. Cool. So, uh, with all that being said, I'll, I'll ask you. I'll move on to a different question. Uh, do you believe we can hinder the Holy Spirit in a worship service if we're not careful? Yes, and, and I'm going to explain how using another quote uh, from a, a book written by Jared Wilson called "The Gospel Driven Church," uh, and I think it's a very uh, insightful quote, and it's going to kind of lead us into maybe maybe a, a, a different angled answer to this question. So, so we, can, we can hinder the Holy Spirit in worship by worshiping the wrong thing. And, and here's what I mean by that. So Jared Wilson writes this, when we lose the centrality of the gospel, we lose the ability to discern and think biblically about worship. The experience, quote unquote, of worship has become an end unto itself. In many churches, the experience of worship is the true object of worship. Worship has become a consumer good, a commodity, with churches trying to outperform, outproduce, and outpassion other churches. The self-interested approach to music is a fitting complement to the self-help messages taught in such churches, which is uh, brings us really to a different discussion of attractional churches, but that's not where we're at. What I, what I want to focus in on with this quote is the fact that the experience of worship and, and feeling uh, emotion or, or having the hair on the back of your neck stand up or, or goosebumps down your legs because of uh, the build of a song or, or the emotions you feel or that are attached to it, while it's not a bad thing to feel as we talked about the difference between emotions and emotionalism, it is fully possible to come into a worship service worshiping the experience you're expecting to get and not the God you're there to worship. And that's when worship shifts to being about the worshiper and not the, not the God who deserves to be the worshiper. The, the quote goes on to say this, even, even if there's a lot of God talk going on, the true object of worship, the one uh, that the, the one the product aims to serve is the worshiper. But this is problematic. And he, he, quotes, he quote, quotes another scholar. He says, as scholar N.T. Wright says, to enjoy worship for its own sake or simply out of a cultural appreciation of the performance 
would be like Moses coming upon a burning bush and deciding to cook his lunch on it, which is a very kind of tongue-in-cheek way to say that, but ultimately it really strikes a chord at the point where we're not taking seriously the things of God. So I think it's possible to hinder the, the Holy Spirit in worship by worshiping worship itself. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. And you said a key word, you said experience. Mm. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that in, in the second segment. But what I'm seeing in these bigger churches uh, and something that's, you know, we have to be very careful when picking the songs we sing. Uh, and that is a whole another episode in and yeah. of itself. But uh, the biggest problem I see with modern worship sets, with modern worship teams, is this idea that, that worship is a production. Uh, and I think back to Paul when he was writing in Philippians uh, and he's writing in, in the epistles and he's giving thanks to God and he's he, he's worshiping God in a prison cell. Uh, and the thing about that is, and the reason I note that, is because Paul's rejoicing, Paul's worship to God doesn't sound any different than a church that has a thousand people in it and they've got all the instruments, they've got the lighting. It doesn't change the effect of the worship. Uh and so I talked about this in the trailer episode. Uh, worship is an it's an act of the heart. Yeah. It's uh, being thankful. Uh, it's an act of thanksgiving. And so uh, what I'm trying to uh, kind of show here is that worship is in production. And so uh, when we get stirred by the Holy Spirit, it, it, it drives some people to emotions and some people it doesn't. And I'll be honest, as a worship pastor, as I sing some songs that drive me to emotion and look out in the congregation, I don't see people being stirred by theologically sound songs. Um, but when we play a song that is a little more emotion, has that emotional drive behind it, people uh, are stirred and moved to that. So it's it's really interesting to uh, investigate and, and, and analyze the church and the people uh, and their worship. So uh, I think that pretty much covers uh, that question. Now I'll move on to a second question. Um, and I, I think this is where a lot of places have wrong. Oh, and it's easy to get this wrong. And I'll say this, the worship pastor is not God. So if you come to church and you're worshiping uh, and you are putting the worship pastor on a pedestal, you're doing it wrong. Um, so I'll ask you this, how much influence does the worship pastor really have on a worship service? And how much is it upon the congregation and their hearts and receptivity and singing and worshiping God? I think that's a very good question. Uh, so I think you're right. I think churches and culture put too much emphasis on the role of the worship pastor in leading worship. And, and I would really, I would simplify the role uh, that the, the the influence of the worship pastor down to two categories that, that he has influence in. One, he has influence on the worship through the content of the songs he chooses. So he can influence them to emotionalism by choosing emotional uh, emotionally based songs. So really he hinders worship there. He, he creates the stumbling block of worshiping worship uh, to kind of go back to that. And then I think his second role, other than choosing right content songs or, or wrong content songs, depending on your guy, uh, the second role is leading by example for him, where, where he can lead by example. And, and that, that kind of plays into the first part of the answer, where he leads by example by choosing songs that, that sing truth, but also by demonstrating how to worship rightly. And not just in, in, in the moment of song, but also in the moment of, of everything that he does to the glory of Christ. Uh, so as far as the worship pastor, I'd say by example and by the content of the music he chooses. And then for how much is it on the congregation, I think it's it relies very heavily on the congregation and their hearts, like you said. Where is their heart at? What are they worshiping? Are they there to worship the worship experience? Are they there to, to, to get something for them? Are they there to worship self? 
Or are they hearing the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word sung and, and sound doctrine sung, and that's bringing them to worship who God is and, and what he's done for us? Uh, that So a lot relies on the congregation. You even think of Matthew uh, or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, where Jesus talks about the, the guy who's at the altar. If he's got something wrong with the brother, uh, he's got to lay his, his sacrifice down, essentially, run and get it fixed and make it right. So wh why did he say that? Well, Jesus is talking about the heart and the law there. The heart is pivotal to worship. If the heart's wrong, if there's conflict, if there's, there's sin, it's got to be made right. So much of worship depends on the worshiper. Right, and, and I think, too, uh, I go back to Matthew, the rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus. He asks him what he can do to obtain eternal life. And Jesus tells him to give everything up and to follow him. Now, now I, I really believe that if Jesus would have gave him an answer he wanted to hear, an answer that uh, maybe Jesus didn't tell him to, to give up everything. He said, follow me, uh, and you could still keep your possessions. You can still keep this, these things. I think the rich young ruler probably would have worshipped God with a, a heart that was in the wrong place. And so I think that idolatry is huge when we talk about worship. Who were we worshipping? And we'll, mm. we'll talk about that in the second segment as well. Uh, but going back to the question at hand, I think that it's a two-way street. Yeah. And as a worship pastor, uh, I've had lots of experience worshiping and leading worship. And it's a two-way street. The congregation oftentimes affects the worship pastor. Uh, and the worship pastor oftentimes affects uh, the congregation. And so once we get that right and we understand that it's none of us that's producing this worship, it's the Holy Spirit uh, inside of us. And so I think that that's key as worship pastors and as uh, fellow Christians who come to church to worship. Uh, let's remember who we are. Let's remember who God is. Let's remember who the worship pastor is. And, and we'll hit more on that in the second segment. Uh, do you have anything else on this first segment? Yeah, I just, I'd actually like to make a comment maybe in, in summary of some of these points based off of the title of your podcast, right, Doxology and Theology. When you think about doxology and, and kind of where that word comes from in a New Testament mindset, the, there, there's what's called doxological passages in the New Testament epistles. You think of Colossians chapter 1, where it talks about how all things is sustained in Christ. You think of Ephesians chapter 1, the, the, the doxology, uh, the, the Christ hymn there, that's, that's really a Trinitarian hymn. You think of uh, different uh, doxologies and, and, and for instance, Romans chapter 8 and different spots in scripture, right? The, the idea of doxology, of, of worship, of, of God being glorified comes from scripture. So, so in its roots, worship is supposed to be inherently theological and, and inherently based on the objective truth of the word. So, so that's an important aspect to remember as we're thinking through these things, because ultimately scripture sets the pace for what we do, how we worship, um, and, and ought to be theological in nature. Okay, so I'm going to ask you this. This is off the script. I want to ask you this question. Yeah. Can we worship without theology? No, because we wouldn't know who God is. And I know that's kind of a simplistic nutshell answer, but, but I mean, think, think about it like this. If, if, if I were to try and worship something, right, you think of Paul talking to uh, the people in Athens in Acts chapter 17 where they have an unknown God, right? It's just literally an altar to an unknown God. How, how do you worship an unknown God? How do you say... Thank you, unknown God, for your character of holiness. Well, no, you don't, it's an unknown God. You don't know that it's, it's holy. It's, it's, you don't know that it's loving, right? We worship God because we know who he is. We know that he's holy, just, loving, perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, right? We know the attributes of God that he doesn't change. He's immutable. He's infinite. He's eternal, right? 
because we know God, we're able to worship God. So apart from theology and being able to know and understand God from his word, no, worship is not possible because we have to know God to be able to worship. Right. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, and uh, that pretty much covers the first segment. We will go into the second segment. Uh, worship experience. Is that accurate? Should we be saying that? Uh, we'll get into that in the next segment. As we continue with the Theology and Doxology for the Church podcast, I will uh, be giving some book recommendations uh, oriented around worship uh, and theology in specific. Uh, so for this episode, I have a book that I'm in the, currently in the middle of reading right now, uh, How the Gospel Forms the Worship Leader, Doxology and Theology by Matt Boswell. And this book is complete fire. Um, I'm in the middle of reading it, as I said right now. Uh, I believe I'm in the second or third chapter, and so... Uh, I love this book. It's a great book, and it really talks about reforming uh, worship and what it is, uh, you know, reshaping uh, the worship leader's uh, mind on worship. Uh, and he had a couple people write with him, Aaron Ivey, Matt Papa, Andy Rozier, and Michael Bleeker. And so this book is absolutely amazing. I would recommend you to read this book if you are looking to uh, just kind of get a better understanding of doxology and theology. Uh, Corbin, what are you in the middle of reading right now, book-wise? Well, outside of school reading, uh, a book that I'm really enjoying, and I actually got, I, well, okay, I'll back up. I got, a, I got a book set for Christmas. It's The Collected Works of Francis Schaeffer, who's one of my uh, all-time favorite authors, uh, theologians, philosophers, Christian thinker, kind of falls into that category. In fact, I enjoy his work and his wife's work so much that my daughter, Charlie Labrie, her middle name, Labrie, is actually based off of the name of their house that they had in the French house, that their, their chateau, uh, which it means shelter in French in there. They did a lot of ministry, but I'm reading his book specifically and his collective works called The Escape from Reason. And essentially in the book, he's tracking how we got to postmodernism and, and, and the thinking and ideologies that we have in modern day America. And recently it's been very interesting, especially because he tracked how the creation of what's called natural theology, which is a belief that you can formulate theology based off of what you see in nature, uh, which which I would say is a wrong belief. Uh, you, you can come up, you can learn things about God. God, God gave general revelation and that creation points to his existence, but to be able to make theology outside of scripture means that there's another source of authority. So he talks about how the creation of that doctrine of natural theology with Thomas Aquinas actually basically snowballed through to where it got to the point where, where the belief in the Renaissance man thought that he could have autonomous thought where, where we can determine what's, what's true based off of what we see in nature. And that's basically snowballed into relativism and uh, postmodernism. So very, very interesting book that I've enjoyed a lot so far, but that's, that's mainly what I'm reading other than schoolwork. Awesome. Uh, shout that book title out with the author. Escape from Reason by Francis Schaeffer. Escape by Reason by Francis Schaeffer and Doxology and Theology by Matt Boswell. Go check those books out. Uh, I've not read the one Corbin's reading, but the book I'm reading is absolutely amazing. So go check them out. Welcome back to the Theology and Doxology for the Church podcast. Uh, in the first segment, we talked about overstepping boundaries. Uh, how far is too far uh, in preparing an emotional worship set? Uh, knowing our places, the congregation, the Holy Spirit, uh, and the worship pastor, what are our roles? And so we discussed that in the first segment. And now moving on, uh, we're going to discuss and dissect the term worship experience. Uh, so Corbin, 
what comes to mind when you hear the term worship experience? And do you think we should be using that term to describe our worship service? Uh, I hear experience, I think concert, uh, but more spe- more specifically, when I hear the word experience, it actually takes my mind, interestingly, to more of a liberal theology that's based in experience rather than objective truth, how we feel, uh, the, the, the goosebumps down the neck moment, and basing what we believe and think off of that, which is where a, good, a great deal of liberal theology comes from, what, what we can experience, feel, see, uh, all that type of stuff. So when I hear that, that's what I think, as, as opposed to juxtapose against a theology, a, something that's concrete, set in the objective standards set by Scripture. Right. So how do you think that negatively affects the role or depicts the role of the Holy Spirit? How do you think it really like diminishes what the Holy Spirit's to do? Because we know that the Holy Spirit isn't about causing experiences. Uh, and although salvation is an event that takes place, it's a uh, moving experience. It really is a moving experience. But uh, his job ultimately isn't to uh, promote this experience. So how do you think it like negatively depicts the role of the Holy Spirit in our worship? Well, if, if you think worship is emotions-based and about an experience, and then you look at how the ministry of the Spirit is described specifically in John, you, you compare those two things, and then, and then if, if you actually think that, that the Spirit's role in worship is, is making the hair on your, the back of your neck stand up and, and giving you good feelings, then you've misunderstood the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's a teacher. Holy mm-hmm. Spirit's a counselor. Holy Spirit imparts wisdom. Holy Spirit gives uh, gives illumination to his word that you can apprehend it and be apprehended by it right so to think that that his role in worship is is to make you feel a certain way is to completely misunderstand no his word or his role in worship is is to teach and to guide and and to draw you closer to christ to make you look more like him through worship through abandoning idols so really his role in worship is completely the opposite of of something experience-based right yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and, and so moving on from uh, that, we are going to talk about results and the constitution of a worship set. Um, I'll say this as a worship pastor, and to give myself a little bit of credibility so you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I've played in our praise team uh, at our church for uh, roughly four years now, uh, and I was just hired on, on staff uh, recently to be the worship pastor. I've also led freeway worship uh, it's a uh, recovery ministry and associated with our church. Uh, I've led that from the time it's launched. So uh, I know, uh, you know, what I'm, what we're talking about. I have firsthand experience. And so uh, I will say this, I've experienced this in particular firsthand. Uh, and, and at the beginning of my ministry, it upset me. Uh, and that is when you don't see the results that you were hoping for during the worship service. And, and I've learned, uh, I, I, trust me, I've learned this. Don't set uh, a standard, a man-made standard uh, going into worship service because if it doesn't meet, if the service doesn't meet that standard, you're you're going to be upset. You're going to be disappointed. So don't uh, go when you go into a service as a worship leader, really as any minister, don't set a standard uh, on your own terms. Set a standard according to God's standards. How is the service running? What are we presenting? Uh, are we presenting the gospel? Is this is the centrality of what we're doing the gospel? And so. Uh, it, it can be really easy to to get discouraged when you uh, don't get the results that you were expecting uh, in a worship service. And so uh, we've sang songs at our church that I believe should completely drive people to their knees 
uh, before God. And, and, and the songs that we sing oftentimes don't. And that surprises me. It blows me away. Uh, that's, that's another episode. But uh, it can be easy to get discouraged when we don't see the results that we're looking for in a worship service. Uh, and when that happens, uh, I feel that it can be easy as, as a worship leader uh, or any minister to try to force the congregation to a place that they essentially don't want to be or are essentially not ready to be spiritually. And so we can go into service with these presuppositions uh, of how things ought to run. Uh, but the fact of the matter is sometimes our congregation isn't ready to be where we want them to be or they're not prepared. They don't know any better. And so uh, that's why going into services, we don't need to set our own standard or run the service based off our own terms. We need to uh, look at the Bible standards for worship and for preaching. And so uh, when we hold firm to the Bible uh, and how the Bible should run, how the church should run according to the Bible, uh, it, it will really save a lot of hurt in the long run. Uh, and so with that being said, I believe uh, it raises the question, who or what are we worshiping uh, as as worship leaders? Uh, are we worshiping ourselves? Are we worshiping the songs we're singing? Do we have idols uh, going into uh, our worship services? And so I think we need to go into each service with God at the forefront of our mind. We are worshiping the risen King. We are worshiping God. We are leading our congregation in a corporate worship uh, to the King, not to us, not to the band. Uh, we're, we are leading worship uh, for God. And so uh, this is a question I ask myself constantly. I encourage my band members to ask themselves this question. Why are we? Why are we on the praise team? Why are we on the band? Why are we leading worship? Uh, and, and and I really expect each person to individually analyze their own hearts and and assess that on their own terms. Who am I here for? Am I here for myself? Or am I here for the Lord? And so, with all that being said, uh, Corbin, I'll ask you this: In your opinion, what is the most effective way that we can promote a healthy worship service in our congregation? You know, before I answer that, I, I was just thinking that it's kind of cool and funny how God's sovereignty works. Some listening to this might not know this as far as those who go to our church, but Noah and I actually were in youth group together back at Crossway Baptist Church, and we actually led worship together in youth group, right? So uh, he played guitar and sang with us. I was a, an upperclassman, a senior then. Uh, but but I, like Noah, I've also led worship, not as a, a main leader, but just in support and as a guitarist uh, for about six years uh, so just just cool to see how God brought us back together to talk about worship after all these years, even though we were, I mean, separated as far as we went to tr different churches in different towns for quite a while. thought that was cool. But in right. response to the question, uh, how, what is the most effective way that we can promote a healthy worship service in our congregation? And I think a big part of this, it really all that goes back to sound doctrine, right? So our uh, what we believe is played out in our lives and how, how we live, how we act, how we worship, how we do all these things. And really sticking close to Scripture and the gospel is a big part of this. Being gospel-centered, singing about the cross, uh, having the, the cross and, and what Christ has done with us constantly before our eyes and our heart as we worship. I think that's a big part of it. But also sticking very close to Scripture, right? And I think it's important to remember, too, that worship isn't just singing. It's, it's, it's every part. It's supposed to be everything that we do. But in, in the context of a worship service, it's supposed to be every part of the service. The, the preaching is worship. It's exaltation, right? So preaching needs to stick close to what the Bible is, and, and that's expository preaching, verse by verse, line by line, which is what our church does. 
uh, not only that, but but our worship songs need to be rooted in scripture and sound doctrine and theology. I think that's a way to. Pro- I think those are two ways to promote a healthy worship service. I also think having corporate prayer where, where we're praying together and 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 lifting up uh, uh, requests to the throne of God together. I think that's part of a healthy worship service. I think a biblical community, which is typically realized nowadays in small groups, but having biblical community, I think that promotes a healthy worship service. And I would also give these. Uh, final two means. Uh, one would be having a healthy habit in, in church of, of repentance because sin has to be removed in order to rightly worship, right? We, right. You think of Matthew 5, like we mentioned earlier, where he had the, the guy at the altar had to leave a sacrifice and go make up with his brother uh, who he had wronged, or, or no, actually it was the brother who wronged him. He didn't even do anything wrong. He had to go fix a relationship with someone else who did something to him in order to worship rightly. So I think confession and repentance needs to be a part and is a, a central part to healthy worship. And then lastly, I think a, a healthy understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper of communion is important to to, to take of uh, the, the bread and the cup frequently to to remember what Christ did on the cross and, and have that serious moment of reflection and examining our own hearts. I think that promotes a healthy worship service, doing church and worship biblically and kind of a nutshell statement. Right, and people... Uh, have this presupposition, they have this idea that the church, and while it is uh, a, a body of believers, the church uh, identifies those who are saved and in Christ. Uh, but I feel that a lot of people outside of the church, uh, even Christians, when they're outside of their corporate body, view church as this corporate gathering of, of believers. And while that is true, the church is mobile. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you are the church. You are part of the church. And so uh, I think you nailed a couple things on the head there. Confession and repentance are huge. Uh, we can, as worship pastors and as ministers, produce so much, uh, but really a lot of it's on the hearts of the congregation. When you come in, uh, you know, each person is responsible for uh, analyzing their own hearts, making sure that they don't have any sins that are that they're living in. So confession and, and repentance are huge in each individual inside of the church. Uh, and if you want to be a part of a healthy worship environment, and if you want to worship God in spirit and truth uh, with no hindrance or distractions, confession and repentance are huge. And so that's where the individual's job comes into play. They are responsible for uh, checking their own hearts and, and, and analyzing and making sure that they are where they are supposed to be spiritually as they come into a worship service. Uh, Corbin, do you have anything else to hit on uh, when talking about a worship experience? I would just say that it, it's very easy to fall into the worship experience mindset. I think probably both of us have fallen into it at different aspects when you've led worship and then whenever I've led worship in the past, where, where, where you slip into really, and, and this is maybe a, an interesting way to look at worship, with it being easy to slip in into being experience-based, which I would even, I would, I'd be willing to connect experience-based worship services to the idea of the tractional church that the church, and this is a, a model of doing church that, that we disagree with, of doing church in order to draw people, uh, not necessarily to hold and disciple people is, is kind of a, a rundown of it. I think, I think an experience-based worship service oftentimes goes hand-in-hand hand with that, and I think also an experience-based worship service can oftentimes go hand-in-hand hand with fear of man, where we're trying to please people more than we're trying to please God. Right, and that would mean at the at the root of worship that's like that is sin because it's putting man and pleasing man 
above Christ, above God, above right worship, right? You think of what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now trying to please people or God? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Who are we trying to please in a worship service? Us, the listeners, the worshipers, or God? Yeah, no, that's huge. Uh, and I'll say this. When I hear worship experience, I hear another word, production. Um, and I, I go back to Paul when he's writing uh, doxological uh, words and he's rejoicing in prison as he's writing these epistles. Uh, that's not a production. The dude's in jail. He's probably looks pretty rough. Um, and he is still worshiping God. Uh, his worship is not any different than our worship, uh, or a church with a thousand people who put on this worship experience slash production. Uh, the worship is not different. It is an act of the heart. It is being thankful, uh, for what Christ did for you and coming in with that mindset. Mm, yeah. Uh, so with that being said, we're going to wrap this segment up, uh, worship experience, not a fan. Uh, Corbin, final impressions on the term worship experience? I'd say it's best to move away from it just because of the connotations of attractional church and liberal theology to a degree, right? I, I wouldn't say I would make a full attachment there, but I think there's an element of that along with just kind of the me-centered, pleasing, self-pleasing man vibes of that, right? It's, it's not a worship experience. We worship off of we wor- I would say I would say this: we worship off of objective truth from Scripture, which isn't an experience; it's it's reality. But we worship also in light of and because of and as a result of a a true concrete experience that happened on the cross. Right? We we worship for that, not for our present experience, but because of what was done in that moment. So that's what I would say. Yep, uh, I think it's a problem. I uh, I don't like the term, uh, and I will say that. If you look around, if you're in a church with uh, lots of members, which, and we're not saying there's anything wrong with uh, trying to, to, to produce a, a, a good, solid worship service. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying it's wrong to practice and to, uh, you know, move with culture, move with, uh, and that's a whole other topic. I'm not saying bring culture in the church, but I'm saying you have to be able to move with the times. Uh, that means updating your softwares, uh, updating the equipment you use. Uh, but what I am saying is that, uh, if you are in a church with lots of members and you look around and, and there's more than 50, 60% of the members that's got their hands up and they're all, you know, the hairs on their back are standing up. I think that might be a problem because, uh, knowing that the church is composed of a lot of unbelievers, the worship service is going to really only truly affect those who are in Christ. Uh, and you will see the results uh, from the Christians and, and those who are lost really don't know how to worship God because they don't know who God is. So, uh, closing out, that is our thoughts on worship experience, the term worship experience slash production. Uh, if you guys have questions or comments or suggestions, please send them to theology and doxology at gmail.com. Moving forward, we will have a mailbag where we draw from that. Uh, we take your suggestions, uh, and your questions and your comments, and we will discuss them in the episodes to come. Corbin, tell them about your podcast briefly. Yes. So I have recently today, in fact, uh, launched my own podcast called Public Theology for Ash Grove. And essentially my goal and burden in it is to bring theology to the public square in my community, in our community. And the reason I do that, and I actually explain my reasoning for it and my convictions behind it in the first episode, which also released today. But the primary reason is I see it modeled in the New Testament. Paul goes and he reasons with uh, the unbelievers and even believers in the public square, in marketplaces, in synagogues, in, in public places of meeting, and reasons from the scriptures, and also from deals with culture and, and pagan poets, and uh, even addresses the gods of other nations, the, the false gods of other nations. So I see that precedent in scripture, and, I, and I, I've, I've 
created this podcast to hopefully do that. It's not under the umbrella of our church. It's kind of my own personal project, and I'm pretty excited about it. This coming Tuesday is the second episode, and it is dealing with Sigmund Freud, uh, psychoanalysis, psychology, psychiatry from a biblical perspective. So engaging that worldview, that philosophy. So uh, if you would check it out, it's on Spotify. Uh, and what's the title of that podcast? A the a uh, public theology for Ashgrove. <laughs> I lost my tongue there for it. a second. Public theology for Ashgrove. Go check it out. Uh, you guys will be hearing more of Corbin Henderson. Uh, we are our office is literally connected. We are right next to each other, so he will be on more episodes in the future. Thank you guys for tuning in uh, to the Theology and Doxology for the Church podcast.